the beauty of being admitted to seminary on academic probation. When you meet people, do you lift them off the ground? Being a growing pastor means you will inevitably feel awkward at times when you are learning new things. Doing exegesis on the text and exegesis on the hearts of your people. Every pastor scholar needs three piles of books. Graduation is called commencement because it's the beginning of an education, not the end. Call him Jerry, because if you call him Gerald, it means the terrorists have won. In this episode of the Teaching Pastor Podcast, we get a conversation on practical pastoral wisdom with Jerry Root, professor of evangelism at Wheaton College. Hey everyone, uh, welcome again to another episode of the Teaching Pastor Podcast, and I am here at Hume Lake with, um, now I saw on your on your email it was Gerald Root. Well, <clears throat> it's a terrorist who caused me to go to Gerald. <laughs> That's my birth name. I have never gone by it. I didn't know how to spell it till third grade. My teachers would call me Gerald. And then in second grade, we read a story about Geraldine the cow, and that, that went nowhere with the with the that's not going to do it so i went by jerry always yeah but when the terrorism came up you had to have your ticket your flight ticket which always said jerry to me be the same as your id and my id's gerald yeah so i've had to sometimes go by gerald and so that changes your initials as well yeah to grr (laughs) gerald richard root so you know yeah it puts me in a bad mood the whole thing so anyway this is with jerry root who is the um, you're a professor of evangelism yes. at Wheaton College, um, and um, you're also a an expert on C.S. Lewis. Yeah, most of my academic work has been on C.S. Lewis. Let me ask this question, Jerry. How many people in the world know more about Lewis than you? Oh, lots. Okay. I, I think lots. <laughs> You know, it, it, we all know each other, though. The people who have been working right. on Lewis for ages, right. we know each other. And there's always new people coming up who are writing new books on Lewis, and those books have a short shelf life because they all say the same thing. Right. But I think it's a good way for a person to stretch their wings and maybe get enter into the publish, publishing world. But you can tell a difference between these new authors. Um, when One will say, well, Lewis believed this, and I can tell you what books that person didn't read because I've read all of Lewis over and okay. over and over again, and this person's being pretentious because they're trying to make themselves look better than they actually are. Or another author, new author, will say, it would appear from this that Lewis believed this. Well, just that little nuance, yeah. that honesty that comes through, I hope the second author writes lots of books. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of new people coming up, and I hope there will be, because the older ones who have been working on this stuff for years, we're yeah. going to all die. <laughs> in in one, one year, one year, three Lewis scholars of, of significant note dropped dead of heart attacks, all three. Wow. And, and one of them, Bruce Edwards, was one of the best of the Lewis scholars mm. who are out there. Mm. But Chris Mitchell, he used to come up here to Hume all yeah. the time. He was gone. And, and another one who was at Taylor University yeah. passed away. But also, Jerry, you're a pastor. You've been, and you had a great tenure as a pastor. I know you were in Santa Barbara um, for a while. But anyway, in terms of, let's just stay on the Lewis side from your pastoral side. Have there been kind of quotes or stories or passages that you have found either really helpful in your own life, which I would imagine, or that you've used quite a bit when you, um, are, as illustrations or um, things that you're kind of bringing to the to a message? Well, one thing, Lewis wasn't afraid of, of doubts and questions. And I don't think if we, if we never have doubts about our faith, we're delusional because we will think we've achieved omniscience. And the person who preaches as if they never have doubts, there's an arrogance that become, becomes evident mm. in their preaching. So you look at a guy like Frederick Beekner, who has a lot to say, but, but he also has enough hermeneutical suspicion about his own position that there's an honesty that comes through. And Lewis, Lewis recognized this. I am, I'm not all-knowing. So he writes in, in a sermon that he preached called The Weight of Glory. He said, If our religion is objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem troubling or repellent, for it's precisely in the troubling or repellent where we discover what we do not yet know and need desperately Mm. to know. And and I I had eight mentoring groups at Wheaton this last year where we met every week. 
and and three of the groups were struggling. I, I sometimes see students and they, they seem to have robust faith while they're at Wheaton and then 20 years later you mm. see them and they're not walking with the Lord. You say, what happened? And some of these students were tr- struggling with doubts and I said, well, let's lean into the doubts, not run from them. Mm. And take, bring me your worst questions. You know, and they'll say, well, the genocide of Canaan, you know, and something like that. And I say, let's look at them and let's look at them honestly and deeply. And as we begin to unpackage them, I say, if we can just find out a probable answer that gives us a way that pulls all the pieces together and it makes sense of them, it may not be the exact answer. And we can sort of hold in the pending tray uh, this, this probable answer. The probable answer means I don't have good reason to vector from God because of this. And we spent six months doing this. All of a sudden, these students have renewed confidence that they don't have to be afraid of their questions. Or that they're able to live in tension. That it, it's it, not, faith is not an absolute knowledge of things. Faith is faith, and there's a tension that resides in faith. It, it's a tension that's rooted, though, in, in some substantive material in Scripture yeah. and so on, but also rooted in a developing willingness to stay inclined to the text because we believe it's authoritative, it came from God, yeah. and also inclined to to want to wrestle with it because it's not God's deficiency that's in evidence here. It's my insufficiency and my inability mm-hmm. to make sense of it presently. Huh. But that present lack of yeah. ability to make sense of it is only temporary. Well, that's a good word. There is such a movement right now um, among evangelical Christians into a phase of deconstruction of faith and um, a, a tremendous movement within the evangelical culture to kind of ask more and more questions and even abandon faith for a while or permanently. And I think that that just that openness to find someone historically that has walked that path like a Lewis or someone that has that has studied Lewis that can be kind of a Sherpa guide into that or like we were just talking with with steve about in in the dining hall about well don't run towards the sunset turn around into the darkness and run towards the dawn yeah but you've got to go through darkness to get there often that's true but also i think craig um the points you make are well made but with lewis it's not the asking of the questions or the doubt that's the end the asking of the questions lead to discoveries and those those discoveries should lead to a sense of awe and wonder. And what I find is a dominant thing in Lewis is that he had this profound sense of wonder mm. of God. And I think the pastor handling the word of God, ministering to people whose lives are being touched by God, should be, should be driven by the wonder. The questions are important to get there, but the questions are a means to an end, not mm. the end itself. One, that's wonderful. Now, this is this is exactly why I want to have you on the Teaching Pastor podcast, Jerry, because these are great. These are great observations, and obviously born out of wonderful scholarship. Now, but on a more lighter side, Jerry, the Bible says to greet everyone with a holy kiss, and we tend to go with handshakes. But you have your own unique form of greeting people that I've witnessed over the years, and that is simply to grab them and lift them off the ground. <laughs> Where did you start to do? When did that become also a good hand plant on the chest? Yeah, that is the, the Jerry the, Root the chest reading. slap. The chest slap. I wish I could say I invented it. You have to take this completely by faith now because I'm an old guy. But I used to be an athlete and I played American football in college and I also played some form of it till I was 44 years old. I mean, I was benching 400 pounds in my 40s and, and, um, we would do these international teams and we'd go over and play even behind the Iron Curtain before Russia, huh. before the Iron Curtain fell, but they had glass nose so you could talk about spiritual things. So we'd play American football. We'd advertise that we were going to have the game, play with one of the local teams, and then we would present the gospel at halftime. And, and we had thousands of people show up for these games huh. and we saw lots of decisions for Christ. We started working on follow-up and then some things fell apart at this end. Uh, at the church where I was working and so on. But um, there were a lot of good things that happened. One of the guys who was involved in this thing, he he started that chest slap thing. And this guy, when he was 40, he bench pressed 400 for, for 10 reps. At 50, he was still benching 400 pounds. When he would slap your chest, it was like your aorta disconnected from your heart. <laughs> and, and, and so instead of a handshake, the chest slap started then. That's fantastic. I mean, it's just, it's a very unique greeting. It makes... 
it makes you you in so many ways. Until you slap the guy who's got a pacemaker or something <laughs> like that, which has happened, and you know, then you, <laughs> and at my age too, I need to start saying, you know, when I hug somebody and pick them up, is your back okay? Are you okay? Well, it might be a helpful <laughs> chiropractic adjustment along the way. Now, our paths have crossed a couple of times. Um, First, uh, well, when I was on faculty at Biola University, you were teaching your class, your C.S. Lewis class. You'd come out during interim, interterm or, um, or summer school. But when I was a student at Biola, I actually took your C.S. Lewis class with my roommate, um, Brett. And That was when I taught it during the semester. I think it was during the semester. I'd drive down from Santa, from Santa Barbara, Barbara one night a week. Yeah. We'd have 200 in that class. It was a, gr- it was a fantastic <laughs> class. I remember we would read passages and... Um, um, it's been it's been something for me that has awoken my own just desire for someone again a, a sherpa someone who who has gone before that can um, articulate even in story form good theology good experience and I remember when I was teaching my theology classes I would um, oftentimes start class with reading a passage from Lewis um, from the the Chronicles essentially and um, one of my favorites and I'll see if you can if you I have a hunch that you'll you'll recognize this, but one of my favorites is obviously there's there's the de-dragoning of Eustace, but um, in the horse and his boy, when Shasta the young boy at the end of the story riding on the path riding on the path feels the breath of something large right him. and it's clear that Lewis is talking spirit language he's he's used, he's talking about the spirit because he's because Shasta's afraid it's a ghost, but it's not and he's not afraid of a ghost but a new fear has come over him. But do you remember that conversation that they oh, had? Oh, I, I remember that exactly. It's such a beautiful conversation. Yeah, and I think it grew out of some of Lewis's own struggles <clears throat> as a boy losing his mother, mm-hmm. as Shasta had lost his mother. And there are a lot of interesting things that Lewis is able to play. But he brings some rich answers. Again, answers that come from inclining towards the struggle and, and rather than running from them. But it is a tender passage. I, w- I want to say something, though, yeah. Craig, about something you said just a minute ago. Um, I, I, you know, I'm older and I've read for years and years and, and, and I'm in awe of books. So I have certain books that I read. I read Lewis. He opens more than wardrobe doors. I read the books that he refers right. to. I'm probably the only PE major in the world who's actually read The Fairy Queen or In Praise of Posey. Or Fantasties. Fa- Fantasties. I mean, I, I, I read the books that he refers to because I think, wow, what's that book about? Yeah. You know, and he awakens a sense of wonder. Some of them you go, I don't, my wonder is, I wonder why he liked that book. But nevertheless, right. usually I, I'm, I'm captivated by them. So I have a pile of books, mostly classics, mostly things related to Lewis' background. Those are books I traffic in. I read, I reread. Then I have books I need to read to keep up in my field. Then I have piles of books that I want to read, but I know I'm not going to get to them till I retire. And what I tell my students now before every class mm. about those three piles of gr- books, and I say, and when I get to those books I've longed to read but just haven't had time for yet, I'm going to see things in every one of them that count at some level against what I've been teaching over the years. Mm. And, and, and I'm going to be praying for my students, Lord, please delete what I said that might have been wrong. Please, Lord, reinforce the yeah. things that I said that might have been right. But I think all of us, if we're growing in any way, there's going to be sort of an awkwardness about that. You know, a toddler learning to walk falls down and gets bruised. A five-year-old taking the training wheels off their bicycle falls down and gets abrasions. You went from that one-room school experience in elementary school to middle school, that most purgatorial period of human development, (laughs) and you had to get to six classes and navigate a locker that never worked. How awkward we felt. If you're not awkward someplace in your life, you're just not growing. Right. But people like this artificial security mm. of feeling like they've got it all together. And it's, there's a pretense to that. Mm. We're, we're people in process. We can have confidence because we can have sure words about things, even though we don't have a last word. Yeah. The fact that we don't have the last word keeps us growing. The fact that we can have a sure word can keep us speaking and mm. preaching with confidence. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. It's a great word. It's a great word. Now, Jerry, your time as a pastor, where... where First of all, where did you do pastoral training? Um, how much of it was in the classroom? How much of it was the School of Hard Knocks? Um, where did you cut your teeth as a pastor? Well, I, I became a ministerial intern at my church, the church that I, I, I became a Christian my freshman year of college. And I started attending a church 
called Granada Heights Friends Church in La Mirada. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it was real close to the Whittier campus where I, where I went to school. And that church at that time had the largest college ministry in that part of Los Angeles. I mean, even Josh McDowell, when he was in yeah. seminary, attended that college ministry. And, and, and I grew there and then became a ministerial intern there for a couple of years under Kent Hughes, who was the, later became the college pastor. Initially, that college group was started by an insurance salesman named Robert Seeley, who just had a remarkable ministry. Mm. And then I went on staff at that church as a youth pastor and then became the college pastor there and then went to Wheaton after that. But the, the, that, was, that was learning things in, in a ministry context. Mm. But I went to Talbot Seminary. Yeah. And I didn't have great grades in college. I had, I had sufficient grades to stay eligible, but not grades to get me into grad school. <laughs> and Talbot at that time was close. I, I put myself through college and through seminary, so I always had to work. I couldn't go someplace else to seminary. Right. I needed to go close where I had my working contacts and so on. And Talbot would always admit a few students on probation because they thought, well, maybe God's doing something in their life. And I think I took the whole quota <laughs> the year I went there. And, 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 and I, 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 was, I benefited greatly yeah. from that school. And, and they, they weren't the school that was at that time. Now, now it's changed quite a bit. At that time, they weren't the school that was sending people off to go to do doctoral work and teach in seminaries and so on. Now they've got people in philosophy of ministry, right. I mean, I mean uh, philosophy of religion and so on. Then the academics at that place, I would never have been able to make it if I went there today. But, but they were a, a, a school turning out pastors. Yeah turning out missionaries, and they were concerned to teach their students how to get in the Word for practical reasons so that they could pass on and, and minister to people. Right. And I, I think I benefited greatly by going there. Yeah. What do you feel like your formal training, like a Talbot, prepared you for in ministry, and maybe what didn't it prepare you for? Well, one of the things it really prepared me for was um, to be a student. I became a student at Talbot. And, and the Lewis thing was already emerging in me. So I was reading Lewis voraciously. I was reading the books he was referring to. But, but I hadn't gotten the discipline of, of, of uh, the things that you needed to learn Greek, to learn Hebrew, uh, to learn uh, historical theology, to think through the theological things in their time and apply them to the present and so on. And also, the, the, the theology is, a, is an unfinished exercise. Walter Elwell, the theologian, said all theology is approximation. We seek better and better approximations. So that means there's going to have to be a discipline to see what the theological application would be to new questions. They didn't put that quote on the back of the dust cover of the book, though, right? The evangelical dictionary. They, what, you know, there's, there's this kind of sense among evangelicals that we're going for certainty. And so that might have been, not been the quote that made the, made the back of the book. Well, Elwell had, I, I knew him well. Right. I, I used to meet at his house for lunch for nine and a half years I love it. and have discussions. Yeah. And, and that kind of humility was, was characteristic of him. Right. So, so anyway, they might not have had the quote on the book, but everything he did right. sort of oozed that right. kind of approach. And, and, that's, he, and that's and why, he was a genius that's too. the beauty of a conversation like this is it's not driven by a Christian publishing or a, or a culture. It's driven by personal experience of personal knowledge and you're having lunch over at Walter Elwell's house, yeah. and you're able to see the humility. Yeah. You're able to see the questions, the process. That's a beautiful thing. And he had a photographic memory. I can give you stories about it that it were just incredible. I, I, I don't know of anybody that I've ever met like that. I've heard Lewis was like that. And I know mm-hmm. Samuel Johnson, who did the dictionary, the, uh, the great lexicographer. Um, he, they were like that, but Elwell was one of these guys. And... Um, and I know several stories that would give evidence of that, that, that happened around that table. But, but nevertheless, um, I felt I learned to think in some ways around it. But anyway, Talbot really rooted me in study. But what I didn't get from it is I learned to study the text and so on. I, I use an illustration that, that um, I, I used to do this with my students. This was before 9-11. I'd say, I want you to open your hand. One's going into ministry. Open your hand. Close your eyes. I'm going to put something in your hand, and I want you to describe it for me as soon as I put it in your hand. When you open your hand, act like you've never seen it before, but describe it for me. Well, they open their eyes, and they say, it's a bullet. I said, no, no, you've never seen one before. Describe it for me. 
Well, it weighs about an ounce. It's about an inch and a third long. It's about a third of an inch wide. It's cylindrical in shape. It's domed at one end. It's flat at the other. Why it says Winchester 30, 38 Special on the, on the flat side. It, it, it looks like two metals, lead and brass. And if I shake it, I can hear a little something inside. And I go, okay, what you did was like exegesis. You looked at the thing and you described it for me well. And, and your description had a reality that supported the claim. That's, that's a truth. Truth is not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. And if there's no reality to support my claim, then it's false. So I said, you did good exegesis. Now, does that guarantee you can hit a target with the bullet? No, you have to be able to do the same kind of exegesis on the hearts of your people. You have to decline their fears. You have, to, you have to parse their relational struggles. And you have to see the syntactical relations between all kinds of things going on in their life. And if you can't do that, then you're not going to hit the target with the bullet. And what's missing in the analogy? And they go, the gun. And I go, yeah, it's not, not a politically correct right. illustration of these <laughs> days, but the gun. And I said, that's right. If you don't have self-awareness, you, there's going to be things in the scripture you're going to miss. I remember I went through a horrible church experience. And it was one of the, the darkest days of my life. And my wife got beat up in that situation, too. And so she started going for counseling. And I saw her starting to get a bounce back to her step. And mm -hmm. she comes to me and she says, Jerry, I think you should go with me uh, for counseling because I think it would help me. I said, OK, Claudia, if we can help you, I'll go. How arrogant is that, you know? But I went and it was the best money I spent on anything, 18 months. And it was an eye opener for me. And I go, this is so good, how come it's not in Scripture? But then all of a sudden I saw it on every page mm. in Scripture. The thing was my eyes had not opened because I wasn't self-aware enough mm. to see things. And in acrasia, Aristotle talks about acrasia, acrasia, um, the, the, um, the justifying or rationalizing the way we do things. Mm. And it could be morally bad or it could just be morally blind. And we will rationalize it because of what we do. It becomes very self-referential. Right. And, and if I have that kind of blindness, I'm going to bring it to the text and I'm not going to see things that my people need to see because they're having relational struggles and they're trying to figure out how to make, make their way through this awkward experience yeah. of life that none of us have great life skill about. So and I you, think this was important. Yeah, and did you, I didn't get that at Talbot. So you felt like you, you gained those skills of exegeting your congregation, like you said, parsing their fears, seeing their struggles. Um, outside, where do you? What were some of the milestones along the way? Like, when did you kind of realize, I've got to exegete my people? The horizon of Scripture is one thing, but the horizon of my congregation. What were some of the things along the way? Well, there were several things, but I want to say something about Talbot before yeah. before I move on, because I don't want to trash him. No, no. I I, I I I bless that school, but what happened is in time they began to see the problem and they started working on that, right. and they started really trying to develop the the interpersonal skills of, the, of their students. And I was impressed by that. Um, but the, the, uh, the things that helped were conversations with others. That was big. The counseling uh, was very important. And I think exegesis then began to, beginning to see things in the text that spoke to this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, David, he's a great leader. He's a man after God's own heart, but he was a horrible father. Why was he such a bad father? And then you realize when Samuel goes to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king, you know, he, he, he brings out Eliab, who's this big strapping guy, and he thinks he's the guy, and God says, no, he's, um, he may look presidential, but he's not my guy. You know, we see in the news this, this, this maintaining the myth of what do they look like? Right. Who cares what the pretense is? But, but finally, six sons come by and... and, and and Samuel hasn't gotten the okay from God, and he has to ask. God could have just said, his name's David, go anoint him. Yeah. But he left the ambiguities in the text so that we could come to the text and see what was going on interpersonally. Mm -hmm. and, and he says, do you have any more sons? So Jesse, he goes, this one that he doesn't matter much over yeah. here. I love that Samuel has to ask. He prays, well, these are them. Well, do you have any others? Like he, Samuel actually has to ask Jesse, yeah. do you have someone else? And he was not even on Jesse's radar screen. Yeah. And now you've got David, right. who's got sons who aren't really on his radar screen. He's not really seeing what's going on interpersonally with them. So texts like that help. And then you go to Ephesians 4.12. What's yeah. the role of the pastor teacher to equip, equip the saints? 
The Greek word katartismos, you look at your Kittle, you look at your Kramer, or you look at your Colin Brown, and you can see that this book had, this word had many applications in Koine Greek, but primarily two. It was a medical term, talked about uh, a, a fixing the bone, mending the bone, the broken bone, that it could become useful again. Mm. And then it had another application, rigging a ship for full sail so it could leave the harbor and fulfill its purposes mm. for which it was made. Mm. And so this idea of mending and deploying mm. becomes very important. We are broken. I have never met a non-broken person. I've only met two people I thought were certifiably evil. Mm. But, but most people are broken. We, we're all broken. So the mending process for the pastor with the text, using the resources in the text to mend, that means they have to be self-aware of their own mending process. And then also mending to the end of deploying. Every person has significant ministry to engage in, whether it be at the workplace or whether it be in international missions. Most of us aren't going to be Pauls. Paul went to different cities. We hold up Paul as the example and we think, well, we better be out like Paul. No, most people are local. They've right. got to minister locally. How is that going to be done? And there's got to be a mending process and a sense of awakening in them that that's the harbor they get to leave yeah. as they minister to those around. That is a great, great metaphors. When you are, let's go, let's do a little bit towards your own preparation. When you're looking at the text of Scripture, um, what are you using to look at it? Are you are you still a paper Bible guy? Have you gone electronic? Um, are you more analog, digital? Are you using multiple translations? How's your Greek and Hebrew? Like, what are you using to look at the text? I, I, I am the most non-technical person you ever met. I've never done a PowerPoint in my life, and I never will, I'm sure. Not because I don't think it's an efficient way to teach. It's just that I think I'm, I'm an old dog who doesn't want to, who, who probably could learn old tricks, but doesn't even want to. Got it. And I'm probably a bit borderline dyslexic because I just learned recently the no switch on my computer meant on. <laughs> so... I mean, I use computers, but mostly to write sure. my books and things like that. But the, but the, the, um, um, I use, I use books Yeah. And, and I was talking to my son who's a pastor in Phoenix and, and I said to him, you know, I have great regrets cause I had tons of commentaries. And when I left the pastoral ministry to teach full time, I, I didn't move them across country. Okay. It was thousands of dollars to move them. Right. And I, I wish now I would have endured the thousands mm -hmm. of dollars because I have two sons who are pastors and I could have given them all those texts. And my, and my son said, Dad, I wouldn't have used those mm -hmm. texts. I've got it all online. And he's got thousands yeah. of books online. Yeah. And, Bible and, software is great for that. And for all kinds of stuff right. he's got. It, that wasn't my case. Yeah. And when I would do prep, what I would do, I would start with the English text. And, and I've, I've finished this summer my Bible for the 47th time straight through. And then I've read, the, I'm in my 33rd read through the New Testament, separate from those 47 reads. I've probably read the Greek text through twice. Okay. So, and I read different versions. I think most of the English translations are good. Yeah. The actual translations, not these paraphrase things. Uh, they could be helpful, but they're more like commentaries on the text. So most of the English translations are good. I know translators of four of our current translations. I know their prejudices. Mm -hmm. I know in the Greek text where you could go right or left with that particular text, yeah. why they went right or left yeah. based on their proclivities. And those things don't show up often in the text. They only show up in the places where those particular translators have, have proclivities. Yeah. So I think you should read through different English translations, and I try to go through a different one every time I read. And, 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 and I'm, I'm impressed with them all except the New World Translation yeah, that Jehovah's well, yeah. Witness thing is abysmal. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I would read through the Bible, usually whatever translation I was using for my quiet times every morning, okay. and I never miss. I don't think I've missed a quiet time in 25 years. So I, I'm, I'm into the text uh, personally. Uh, so I would read it through several times, and then I would go to the, if it's New Testament, to the Greek text. My, my Hebrew is tohu avohu, unfortunately. Um, Formless so, and void for those uh, keeping score. Yeah, I, so I can use the critical commentaries yeah. with the Hebrew yeah. still, but, but I, I, I just didn't have time to keep both up, and, and, and I have stayed in the Greek text. And Quick aside, yeah. when I was in seminary, I was just coming up, uh, I, I started mid-year, because I, I, again, you have to take it by faith. I played football when I was in college, and I finished that last season and then went to seminary. And I am there for orientation as guys are coming out of their finals. And this guy who I knew 
handed me his Greek New Testament and said, I just took my Greek final. I'm never going to look at this again. Hmm. And I got my first Greek text that way. I got my first Hebrew text the same way. And I thought, you sweat bullets for this stuff. Hmm. Why would you let this go? Maybe practically you're not able to keep up on both, but it seems to me you should keep up as best you can on the text. So, so I would go through the Greek, do the English first, try and get a flow of the, of the scripture and so on, the central idea. But, you know, we can say that we got, we got the central idea. This book comes from omniscience. Every time I read it, I see something I didn't yeah. see before. Mm-hmm. And it seems to testify the omniscience. It also seems to testify the fact that the questions I bring to the text that particular day uh, are, are answered in that text at some level. So it drops the elevator of my thoughts down to that level of omniscience that's reflected in the text. Every time I read it, I see some problem I don't understand. And so I put that in the pending tray. Next time or two through the text, I see what the answer is to that problem. So I look for the outline of that hour. It may not be the outline of the next time I read it because of whatever the issues are that in some ways I'm bringing to the text or new ways the text is opening up to me. So I do the Greek, I do the English, I do the Greek exegesis, and then I try to find what is the main point I want to make that, that week, and what are the supporting points of it. And I let it ruminate for a few days. And then after that, I go to the commentaries. And I mainly go to the commentaries, not just for looking for extra insight, but also looking for checks on my bad exegesis. Yeah, to confirm what you've seen. Or to, or to, to check. Yeah. yeah, and I think that becomes important. And usually I, w- I would do a few critical commentaries, uh, maybe a few that give historic background. I, I used to use uh, uh, William Barclay. Yeah. He was good, but he, he never told you where he got stuff. He had a doctorate in Talmudic <laughs> studies, so he got a lot of it from good background, but, you know. Right. How about a footnote? Yeah, yeah, yeah never. And then, and, then, um, <clears throat> and then I would maybe look at a devotional commentary or two. Right. And then as I would put it together, I'd say, how can I make this stick? So um, I, when I was at Talbot, I took several courses in, in, in preaching. Yeah. And I did one on uh, preaching styles. And I've, I've seen people who, who uh, say, if you don't preach uh, expository sermons following this pattern, you haven't really done it. Well, then I look at the people they hold up as expositors, and none of them do it exactly like right. that. So Spurgeon, he was a textual preacher. You know, you, you, you had some people who were, uh, 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 Swindoll was a life situational preacher. Right. You had John MacArthur. John MacArthur, interestingly enough, he said his number one book that he used besides the Greek and English text was R.A. Torrey's Treasury of Scriptural Knowledge. Mm. And if you're in a, a MacArthur uh, sermon, he's taking you from cross-reference to cross-reference, right. you know. Right. And, and, and then you had other people who, who followed an outline straight through, a John Stott or a Kent Hughes type person who followed the outline from the text and preached it that way. And some people say, if you're not preaching that way, you're not preaching right. well. And I go, where's the example of that in Scripture? There's not one. Yeah. It's a good way to preach. And I think preach all those ways. That's okay. Yeah. But, but don't say my way is Yahweh. Because now all of a sudden there's an arrogance that will come right. through in the preaching style too. So, so find the style that works for you. That's fine. Make sure you're representing the scriptures well and accurately. Mm-hmm. But, but look at how Jesus preached. He often used parables. Why? I've, I've, I've talked with pastors say, I never use illustrations. I find it too manipulative to use a story because you're appealing to the emotion. Well, they need to read Aristotle's rhetoric then where he says you've got logos, content, You've got ethos, the credibility of the speaker, but also the, as Augustine picks up on it and is on Christian doctrine, and he talks about rhetoric, he, he, he says you also have to understand the credibility of your audience. Where's your audience at? And, and then you have to talk about pathos. The, the idea of pathos is if you haven't moved the audience, they're going to go out and hear the scripture, and they're going to be like the guy in James who looks in the mirror and then forgets what he looks like. There has to be the story as well. Mm where you see it in shoe leather, where it fleshes out, where the word actually does become flesh. Mm. And the story helps with that. And, and so I would try to then craft the stories that I could bring that would communicate and so on. And, and that's the way I would go. Yeah. When did you feel like, I mean, obviously when, you're say, when people are saying there's only one, there's one style to preach with, not only might there be an arrogance, but there also might be a stunting of someone's growth to find 
their own particular style. Sure. When do you feel like you found your voice? Like when you knew, no, that's not, that's not something I would say. And, and you knew, okay, I know what Jerry Root, what my style is, what God has kind of called me, where my voice is at. What were some of the, the kind of markers along the way where you found that? Or was there a moment in time or was it a process? I think it was a process. You kind of grow into it and lean into it. I, I, I use story a lot. And, and, and I think that they help make what you say memorable. I don't think it's the main way it's memorable. There's something else more critical than that. Um, we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But I think the story does make it memorable. But, but I recognize that the story also, if it's told well, it, it minimizes the arrogance. Because you're not making this as a last word. It's a story. And Jesus uses story. When he uses parables, we recognize the, the, the literary quality, which, which I think also is really important to understand, literary sure. quality. And a, a lot of that I get from C.S. Lewis. Right. You know, he says when a man um, writes a, a love sonnet, he not only loves the beloved, he also loves the sonnet. He picks a literary form that helps him. Uh, sometimes fairy stories say best what needs to be said, he writes. He picked science fiction because he wanted to write romantic literature. Romance is always about a place. It comes from the word Rome. It comes from Virgil's mm-hmm. Aeneid. And Aeneid, Aeneas is a guy caught between the, the city of his birth, Troy, mm-hmm. and the city that he will build, Rome. Virgil's trying to give the Romans a mythology for right. their city. It's a lot like Hebrews, Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees looking for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Augustine didn't like the myths. He liked that one because he thought it was descriptive of human experience mm-hmm. and so on. So Lewis would write uh, romantic literature, but how do you do that if it's for a place that's distant and a little bit op- uh, uh, ambiguous to right. us? How do you write it when the earth has been explored. So he said, well, let's do it extraterrestrially. So he's not looking for the Isaac Asimov scientific technology. He's just writing about extraterrestrial to help people think about heaven, which is something beyond. So when you go to the parables, again, back to the story and sermon, something I learned, um, the parables as a literary form are usually trying to teach one thing. You might have exceptions to it, the parable of the sower, in the soils, there's four different soils where you look at this. Uh, the seed's supposed to bring about transformation, fruitfulness, and so on, but there's some impediments, and we look at that. But you go to the one about the, the, um, the um, woman who has an issue at court, and she's pounding on the, the door of the unjust judge, and she's disturbing him. Finally, he comes down frustrated and says, what do you want, woman? And, and he meets her need, and then Jesus says, therefore, we should always pray. Well, if you make an anal- uh, an allegory right, straight of that, in, yeah, right. straight allegory out of that, then God's the unjust judge. Right. No, the point was the persistence in prayer from the lesser to the greater. Yeah, yeah, right. and, and and so so I, I I look at story and I look at it has limits, but it also has power yeah. to to communicate some emotive feature. So so then I, I listen. I like to listen to NPR radio. Yeah. Um, I I don't really lean in the direction of their politics yeah. necessarily, but they are brilliant storytellers. Right. And so I'll listen to a story, and this has sh- helped also shape how I look at yeah. this because you asked that question. So they'll tell a story about some five year old kid who has to wear a football helmet because he has twenty seizures a day. And they tell this heart-wrenching story of the parents who love their child, taking him from, from doctor to doctor to find some solution, and then homeopathic medicine. And a half hour, by the half hour, you've, you've, you've filled seven handkerchiefs with tears, you know, and you're just, you're just beside yourself. And then finally they find the solution. If the boy eats muffins laced with hemp, you know, if they have marijuana lace muffins, this child will be well. Okay, that's fine for the child. That's great. Give the child muffins lace with hemp. But their outcome is, therefore, everybody should have muffins lace right. with hemp. And, and this is just nuts, absolutely nuts. And I, 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 I just think stories have their place. If I'm an astronaut going to the moon, I don't want the physicist setting the trajectory for my rocket, sitting around telling Goldilocks and the three bears. Right. You know, there's a limit. I want to understand the limit and the power and the use of story without manipulating with story. And I think that becomes important too. But also, another side to it that's helped me, I read widely and I read classics. I 
I, I, I don't read always the most contemporary books because five years later, nobody even remembers that book was published. Sure. But the books like Dante and Chaucer and Shakespeare, Shakespeare, my word, um, about 30 years ago, 35 years ago, they started performing Shakespeare in every period costuming, any period, right. not just Elizabethan costuming. Because right. they said Shakespeare's always contemporary. All, almost all the plays begin with some kind of confusion. Right. In, in the comedies, everybody gets a laugh at their own expense at the end. In the tragedies, everybody takes themselves too seriously, and at the end, the stage is strewn with dead bodies. Mm. That's very true. Mm. Can we laugh at ourselves, or do we take ourselves too seriously? These, I read these books. And I see why they're classics and why they've been around forever mm. and, and the richness of them. Okay, so uh, several years ago, I had five different people in three weeks tell me I should read The Power and the Glory by, by Graham Greene. Okay. I, I've never had, it was a, he won a Nobel Prize for literature, you know, it was shortly after that book was written. I've never had five people in three weeks tell me read this book. So I went and read it. And it, it's set in Mexico in the late 1920s, early 1930s. It's a novel. And the Catholic Church has been declared illegal because they feel like they're too much in league with the bourgeoisie mm. rather than the proletariat. Uh, this state has become Marxist. And so in that state, the Catholic Church is declared illegal. Many of the priests flee the state. Some of the priests uh, step away from the Catholic Church, take on wives so they won't be judged. Mm. Some of the Catholic priests are rounded up, given kangaroo trials, and executed by firing squad. And there's one guy, the main character of the book, his name is never given. He's just simply called the Whiskey Priest. And he's a messed up guy. And he's trying to figure it out. And he goes from village to village um, giving, giving the Eucharist, the giving, sacraments. Uh, giving the sacraments. He's, he's solemnizing marriages. He's baptizing babies, all the things that would be important for Catholic right. theology. And, and, and yet he never knows if he's going to have the Eucharist wine when he gets to the village or if he's going to drink it. He's, mm. he's, he's got all kinds of flaws. And, and, and I'm thinking, okay, that must be the reason why these people asked me to read the book. But, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, I'm reading the book. And while I'm reading this book about this guy, who's a conflicted guy, who has what C.S. Lewis called the roughness and density of life. There's dignity and brokenness. It's the world that we actually live in. In my quiet time while I was reading that book, I was reading the book of Proverbs. And I bring the questions of the power and the glory, this literary critical, this literary work, to my study of that book. Proverbs is a book that juxtaposes the wise man and the foolish man, the righteous man and the wicked man, the industrious person and the slothful person. And I'm looking at this book, having read The Power and the Glory, and I said, I, I'm not the wise man. I'm not the righteous guy. There's laziness in my life. I'm not the, the, the industrious person. But I'm weary of being the wicked guy, the fool, and the lazy person. I feel like I'm a man who's longing to move across the ledger to the other side. I'm a man in the middle. What does the book of Proverbs say to the man in the middle? And I started thinking, I think that's, that's the point of the book. Hmm. It's speaking to we who are in the middle. Last time I read through Proverbs, I thought to myself, Solomon's writing this advice. I think he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He didn't live up to any of it. You know, watch out for the, for the non-virtuous woman and all that stuff. Right. He was yeah. a guy who couldn't control his, 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 uh, uh, his sexual desire and so on. And he's writing to his son. He wants his son to get this. And Rehoboam didn't get any of it. Mm. The word is still true, whether I live up to it or not. It's still true. But it is written to the man in the middle. Mm. And I think that there are things that were questions that the literature of our world, questions that history asks, that the questions of philosophy. The pastor needs to be immersed in this stuff mm. so that they can come to the text with these questions because the scriptures speak to those questions yeah. and give us confidences in, 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 in God's word that's yeah. given to us. So I think that stuff's important. And I think that that stuff has emerged as I have tried to be a reader yeah. and a student, not only of the word. I'm in it every day. I don't miss and, 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 and also be a reader. I've had people say, I don't need other books. I've got the Bible. Right. Well, if that's a hardworking farmer who's putting in 14 hours a day somewhere in Nebraska, I praise him. I say, I think you made a good selection. But if it's a guy who's an arrogant guy who says, I don't need other books. I've got the Bible. I said, it's not going to be long before you're going to be using the Bible like a ventriloquist uses his dummy. Hmm. And the Bible's going to speak your word 
and you're going to put a thus saith the Lord across it, and you're going to use it for, for, for a kind of arrogance. I think this is very dangerous. Yeah. I think the person who's a student of the word should find that the word does not shut them down, but opens, opens them, up them up to a wider world. Yeah, absolutely. Where would you recommend, like let's say you're, you are talking to a, a young pastor who is you know, young family, time is precious, and yeah. they don't have a lot of it. They've got, they love their congregation. They've got to say something on Sunday morning. But they're, they have this longing, I do want to enter into that world. What do you think would be is a good gateway of literature? Obviously, maybe for you, Lewis was a great gateway. And then you were like, well, he mentions this, so I'm going to go in that direction. How would, you, how would you recommend a pastor enter into the world of literature? Well, when I, when I was a, a graduating from college, I was already reading Lewis pretty voraciously by that time. And part of it was I, I wanted to see my friends come to Christ. They would ask questions. I had no clue about those questions, and I didn't know. I, I never saw it as a conversation stopper. I'd say, if that's the barrier that's keeping you from faith, I won't leave a stone unturned. Lewis's name cropped up in the literature. My older sister turned me on to Lewis, and I was reading him. But when I graduated from college— a man wisely said to me, you don't get an education in college. I wondered, what was I paying all this tuition for? <laughs> Got the loans. Yeah. He said, commencement is the exercise for graduation. And you lay a foundation in college for your education, but now commencement means you will build on that foundation. You're just going to begin your it's education. Right. A lot of people, they think it's the end yeah, of their right. education. They shut down and they, they, they stay in this vortex of ignorance. And And, and he said... Pick an author who will take you places and make that author your life study. And I think he could have said, pick an artist, pick a composer, pick yeah. a period of history. It was interesting to me that Karl Barth was a, a fan. Not, a fan's probably a bad word to say, but he was a student of the American Civil War. When he went to Columbia University to speak, he did it on condition that he would be given a tour of many of the, of, of the Civil War sites. Huh. So he was a student of this sort of thing. And here's a guy that out of the World War I right. moves from classic liberalism to a whole new awakening. Sin is really sin. The gospel is really the gospel. We need the gospel. So this sort of war understanding may be awakened in him. Where, where do you see mm. human, human crises, yeah. human conflict, human courage emerge? Right. So he had that sort of thing. So it could be a war. It could be whatever. But something that will keep you growing and developing. Mm. And for me, Lewis was, was that key. I think every pastor should have something like that. Yeah. So you say, well, when do you do it? Well, I, you know, I just get up earlier than everybody else. Nobody's asking for your attention at five in the morning. It's, it, it's right. Yeah. And I'm at least an hour in the Word. and I, I'm, I've, yeah. I got my Greek text there when I'm in the New Testament. I, I try and spend time in the Greek every day. Um, but the, but the, the, um, there's also, then I put aside time every day. To read and the cumulative effect of reading a little bit every day. I, I, I remember meeting John Piper years ago, first time, and, and he was a, a known Jonathan Edwards scholar, but he was only 48 years old when I think when I mm. first met him. And, and I said, How'd you become a renowned Edwards scholar when you're so young? He said, I read 15 minutes a day in Jonathan Edwards. He said, I think if anybody reads 15 minutes a day in any topic, the cumulative effect of that in 20 years will be known as a, as a, a, a scholar of that area. I, I shared that with a guy once, and he, he came to me recently. He said, you said that before, and I've been reading 15 minutes a day in Calvin for so many years. And he told me how much Calvin he's read over mm -hmm. the cumulative effect. And then you add to it and then maybe an hour a day mm -hmm. in, in, in reading along these lines. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and I think what happens is the cumulative effect is what yeah. makes a difference. And you're bringing, you're bringing a, a person who's growing into the pulpit every Sunday. You're bringing a person who's in the, in, in the stretch and also a person who's less likely to make overstatements. And yet a person who could preach with authority in the realm of sure words. But even, even the truth I know. And, and I, I don't think that this truth, it's true. It's not going to change in the sense that it will today seem to be truth and tomorrow it will be falsehood. No, this is true word. I've got the reality that supports the claim. But the truth I hold in an open hand because I haven't yet plumbed the depths of that truth or seen all of its possible applications. I hold truth dynamically 
because there's growth that can take place mm. even in the understanding of that sure word even though I don't have a last word. That's and great. if I can preach a sure word with confidence, with the humility that I haven't gotten the last mm. word, my guess is I'm inviting the people in my congregation mm. into a world of wonder and a world of awe. Man, that's a great, it's a great word. You know, I think when you talk about 15 minutes a day, I think for me, the one thing I would have to do is, in order to say yes to that, you gotta say no to other things. You gotta focus. And if you're going to pick one author or one time period or one thing, you have to you have to kind of give it its space. And I think that there's so many things that clamor for attention, um, so many new books that are out or new trends or new things. But to have the discipline to say, no, I'm going to put that stuff on the back burner, but I'm going to make sure I hit my Jonathan Edwards or I'm going to make sure that I hit my C.S. Lewis or I'm going to make sure I hit my World War Two reading or my Civil War reading. Um, because I want to, I want to spin that wheel so it becomes a flywheel, and eventually it's running on its own. And I have a, a a well of knowledge that I've dug deep. And every time I put the bucket in, there's water that comes up. I think this is really good, Craig. But I also think that there are how I organize my schedule. Um, I I think we always have time for what we want to do, really want to do. Our time with the in the Word is non-negotiable. Our time where we make sacrifices for our family is a non-negotiable. Um, I also think if you're a pastor, you're trying to develop yourself um, intellectually and so on, so you have more to offer to your people, but you don't want to neglect your people. So I, I knew a man once, he spent 40 hours a week in sermon prep, but he did it for years and years. And I'm thinking, why, why are you taking so long? Haven't you developed enough skills that it should take you less time. So I knew a guy who, who was a, a Volkswagen uh, mechanic. He said the first time he changed an engine on a Volkswagen, it took him two days. But it got to the place over years where he could do it in about an hour. And it seems to me those kinds of skills should also be appearing hmm. in the life of a pastor. When I started in pastoral ministry, it took me 25 minutes to prepare a message. But in time, it took eight. And the reason why was because I had learned I didn't, it didn't take me as, I didn't have to look in my lexicon every word yeah. because I, I, I knew those words. And, and I also, because I was reading other things, brought more to the text as well. So I'm getting more out of it right. as I read. It seems to me there then I, I am able to save time in one area yeah. and then fill that time with other things right. uh, that are more contemplative and so on. And, and I, I, I think that those, those, Give and takes are also part of it. Yeah. Also, I don't like it if I, if I have a person say, here's the formula, do this and you'll be fine. And I go, I don't think you're living real life. Mm. You know, I may have this as a goal that I want to spend in a balanced schedule, this much time here, this much time, this much time here. But wh whose life works like that? Yeah. I can remember one time when I was a pastor, I was preparing for Sunday, Sunday morning and I had three deaths in my congregation that week. I had three sermons to prepare. I had three families to go and comfort and be with and walk them through these, these kinds of things. And, and what do you do? You cry out to God for help. You cry out to God, Lord, my time is so limited. Can, 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 you, can you give me grace here and help me? And you would see how things would start to fall together, even for that Sunday sermon. And, and something was brought. Also, any pastor who's not spending time with his people and not benefiting from conversations with his people is, is cheating his congregation because he doesn't have in mind the struggles of the people in the pew. And this, I said in a, min, a, a bit ago, I would get to one thing that I think is really essential for making the connection. Yeah. I don't speak even when I give lectures to my students without praying, Lord, I am only offering crumbs. I am so limited. We're all pea brains. The Widener Library at Harvard University, 19 million volumes under that one roof. Hmm. Who's read them all? The Bodleian Library at Oxford University, 136 miles of shelf space. Hmm. Who's read them all? We are such pea brains. Hmm. We don't bring much to anything. And, 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 and we've got people who are sitting there listening, whether they be students in the, in the classroom chair or or. or congregates in the pew who have such complex issues they've got challenges they've got joys and they've got sorrows what is the hope of any individual standing in a pulpit offering something that's going to connect with every one of those people so i say lord 
I'm offering crumbs. But I know that your son took nothing more than crumbs from Andrew, five loaves and two fish. And he did some magic with those yeah. things and multiplied them. And every person left satisfied. Mm. Would your Holy Spirit please do with my crumbs the same thing mm. so that somehow there could be a translation from my mouth and my study mm. to their individual hearts? I can't tell you the number of times I've had people come up to me. Oh, you said something that just connected with me so deeply. And I say, then let us thank God because you heard mm. me pray at the start. Mm. God must really love you. Because he took the crumbs mm. and gave you what you needed. And that meant that he identified to you mm. that you were a special object of his love. Mm. And it keeps a pastor from being arrogant too, thinking, wow, I, I'm going to strut my stuff. I did something yeah. good. We offer crumbs. Mm. And God uses those crumbs. If we're not praying for those people, if we're not remembering this is a supernatural activity, I have never taught a class in my life. I, I was a pastor 23 years. For 16 of those years, I prayed for every student before every class. When you were in that C.S. Lewis class at Biola, there were 200 students in that class. Every one of them had been prayed for by name before that class hmm. started. I've never taught a class where I didn't pray for every student by name because I believe even in education, the transfer of this kind of life-changing knowledge has to be supernatural at its core. Hmm. And we're just we're instruments of God's purposes, but we're not the, the ones who are accomplishing God's purposes. Jesus said in John 15, Five, uh, 15 5 apart from me you can do nothing any pastor who's not remembering that is doing a disservice to the people he's seeking to serve man that is a great great word jerry especially for pastors on this that are listening in um i think the line we are all just pea brains and yeah. uh, the idea that we're feeding crumbs and we need god to do something something ma magical something that we can't do he has to do what only he can do and, and then when somebody comes up to you 20 years after you spoke at something mm. and they tell you something you said, you don't even remember it. Right. But, but you, you weep. You weep because you see how God was at work. God in was this. at work. It makes me, I move now. As I, I know. It's, <laughs> this is, it's, it is special to hear. It's special to hear you reflect on your years of teaching, your years of pastoring, your practices that have stood the test of time. I would imagine there's practices that you're like, oh, you know, I can't remember it because it didn't really matter. But now, as you think back, no, these are the things that have made my ministry meaningful. And I deeply appreciate what you do, what you did back in that C.S. Lewis class, what you've done over the years, what you're doing at Wheaton with evangelism, and what you're doing up here at Hume Lake. I just really appreciate you and your ministry, Jerry. God shows up. Take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Mm. It's awesome. Well, thanks for your time. Um, I think that this is going to be super helpful. Um, if there is, is there anywhere that someone can go online to hear a Jerry Root sermon? Well, I'm, again, I'm not a techno guy, <laughs> but my kids are. And they came to me and said, Dad, Google your name. <laughs> I Googled my name and I just couldn't believe all the stuff that's out there. Right. So you go speak someplace. I mean, I'm on a plane every week right. speaking someplace, lecturing someplace and so on. And, and, um, and there's all this stuff out there. I yeah. don't know how it gets well, out Well, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll put some links and, um, some of the things that came up in this, uh, podcast, we'll put some links there. I'm gonna have to re-listen to it to, to hear all the references and put the links in, but it's awesome. Love what you're doing, Jerry, and appreciate you and your ministry over the years. Thanks, Craig. Oh, that is just some great stuff from Jerry Root. Uh, I hope that that was as inspiring to you as it is to me, um, just inspiring to be a pastor scholar and what that all means. Um, if you want to hear some sermons from Jerry Root, go ahead and Google his name. There's a link in the show notes to just a simple Google search of his name. Um, and check out some of his, uh, his messages um, or his coursework or look him up on Wheaton College. There is a link to Wheaton College in the show notes. There's also a link to Talbot School of Theology, where Jerry did his seminary work, and we had that conversation. There's also a link in the show notes to the Walter Elwell page on Amazon, and that will not disappoint. Walter Elwell, very influential evangelical scholar, and it was great to hear some of Jerry's firsthand accounts of sitting around his table. There's also a link to um, R.A. Torrey's book, The Treasury of Scriptural Knowledge, which was mentioned. 
And if you do want to delve into the realms of the classics, uh, there's a link to Virgil's Aeneid, which was referenced by Jerry, as well as um, the Penguin classic book, The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. And um, if there's anything that I think I've learned from Jerry, it's just find the point of entry and dive in and see where it takes you. Um, We're so grateful for Jerry for his time. We're grateful to you for downloading the podcast. Uh, Do us a favor, um, rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Um, Do us another favor. And if this was an episode that you learned something from, pass it along and share the podcast with some people that you think would appreciate it. Um, This was a wide-ranging conversation, and surely there are people either within your congregation or other pastors or students that you know that could benefit from it. You could also visit our Patreon page and become a patron of the podcast. That's at patreon.com backslash the teaching pastor. So until next time, my name is Craig Hill, and this is the Teaching Pastor Podcast. Fades away. I want to hear the good Lord say, well done.